This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading is by Graham Redman. The Chronicles of Clovis Short Stories by Sarki The Story of St. Vespaluus "'Tell me a story,' said the Baroness, staring out despairingly at the rain. It was that light, apologetic sort of rain that looks as if it was going to leave off every minute, and goes on for the greater part of the afternoon. "'What sort of story?' asked Clovis, giving his croquet mallet a valedictory shove into retirement. "'One just true enough to be interesting, and not true enough to be tiresome,' said the Baroness. Clovis rearranged several cushions to his personal solace and satisfaction. He knew that the Baroness liked her guests to be comfortable, and he thought it right to respect her wishes in that particular. "'Have I ever told you the story of St. Vespaluus?' he asked. "'You've told me stories about grand-dukes and lion-tamers and financiers' widows and a postmaster in Herzegovina,' said the Baroness, "'and about an Italian jockey and an amateur governess who went to Warsaw, and several about your mother, but certainly never anything about a saint.' "'This story happened a long while ago.' he said, in those uncomfortable piebald times when a third of the people were pagan, and a third Christian, and the biggest third of all just followed whichever religion the court happened to profess. There was a certain king called Krikos, who had a fearful temper and no immediate successor in his own family. His married sister, however, had provided him with a large stock of nephews from which to select his heir and the most eligible and royally approved of all these nephews was the sixteen-year-old Vespaluus. He was the best-looking, and the best horseman and javelin-thrower, and had that priceless princely gift of being able to walk past a supplicant with an air of not having seen him, but would certainly have given something if he had. My mother has that gift to a certain extent, she can go smilingly and financially unscathed through a charity bazaar, and meet the organisers next day with a solicitous, had I but known you were in need of funds, air that is really rather a triumph in audacity. Now, Krikos was a pagan of the first water, and kept the worship of the sacred serpents, who lived in a hallowed grove on a hill near the royal palace, up to a high pitch of enthusiasm, the common people were allowed to please themselves, within certain discreet limits, in the matter of private religion, but any official in the service of the court who went over to the new cult was looked down on, literally as well as metaphorically, the looking down being done from the gallery that ran round the royal bear-pit. Consequently there was considerable scandal and consternation when the youthful Vespaluus appeared one day at a court function, with a rosary tucked into his belt, and announced in reply to angry questionings that he had decided to adopt Christianity, or at any rate to give it a trial. If it had been any of the other nephews, the king would possibly have ordered something drastic in the way of scourging and banishment. 
but in the case of the favoured Vespaluus, he determined to look on the whole thing much as a modern father might regard the announced intention of his son to adopt the stage as a profession. He sent accordingly for the Royal Librarian. The Royal Library in those days was not a very extensive affair, and the keeper of the King's books had a great deal of leisure on his hands. Consequently, he was in frequent demand for the settlement of other people's affairs when these strayed beyond normal limits and got temporarily unmanageable. "'You must reason with Prince Vespaluus,' said the King, "'and impress on him the error of his ways. We cannot have the heir to the throne setting such a dangerous example.' "'But where shall I find the necessary arguments?' asked the librarian. "'I give you free leave to pick and choose your arguments in the royal woods and coppices,' said the king. "'If you cannot get together some cutting observations and stinging retorts suitable to the occasion, you are a person of very poor resource.' So the librarian went into the woods and gathered a goodly selection of highly argumentative rods and switches, and then proceeded to reason with Vespaluus on the folly and iniquity, and above all the unseemliness of his conduct. His reasoning left a deep impression on the young prince, an impression which lasted for many weeks, during which time nothing more was heard about the unfortunate lapse into Christianity. Then a further scandal of the same nature agitated the court, at a time when he should have been engaged in audibly invoking the gracious protection and patronage of the holy serpents, Vespaluus was heard singing a chant in honour of St. Odilo of Cluny. The king was furious at this new outbreak, and began to take a gloomy view of the situation. Vespaluus was evidently going to show a dangerous obstinacy in persisting in his heresy and yet there was nothing in his appearance to justify such perverseness. He had not the pale eye of the fanatic or the mystic look of the dreamer. On the contrary, he was quite the best-looking boy at court. He had an elegant, well-knit figure, a healthy complexion, eyes the colour of very ripe mulberries, and dark hair smooth and very well cared for. "'It sounds like a description of what you imagine yourself to have been like at the age of sixteen, said the Baroness. "'My mother has probably been showing you some of my early photographs,' said Clovis. Having turned the sarcasm into a compliment, he resumed his story. The king had Vespaluus shut up in a dark tower for three days, with nothing but bread and water to live on, the squealing and fluttering of bats to listen to, and drifting clouds to watch through one little window-slit. The anti-pagan section of the community began to talk portentously of the boy martyr. The martyrdom was mitigated, as far as the food was concerned, by the carelessness of the tower warden, who once or twice left a portion of his own supper of broiled meat and fruit and wine by mistake in the prince's cell. After the punishment was over, Vespaluus was closely watched for any further symptom of religious perversity, for the king was determined to stand no more opposition on so important a matter, even from a favourite nephew. If there was any more of this nonsense, he said, the succession to the throne would have to be altered. 
For a time all went well. The festival of summer sports was approaching, and the young Vespaluus was too engrossed in wrestling and foot-running and javelin-throwing competitions to bother himself with the strife of conflicting religious systems. Then, however, came the great culminating feature of the summer festival, the ceremonial dance round the grove of the sacred serpents, and Vespaluus, as we should say, sat it out. The affront to the state religion was too public and ostentatious to be overlooked, even if the king had been so minded, and he was not in the least so minded. For a day and a half he sat apart and brooded, and every one thought he was debating within himself the question of the young prince's death or pardon. As a matter of fact, he was merely thinking out the manner of the boy's death. As the thing had to be done, and was bound to attract an enormous amount of public attention in any case, it was as well to make it as spectacular and impressive as possible. Apart from his unfortunate taste in religions, said the king, and his obstinacy in adhering to it, he is a sweet and pleasant youth. Therefore it is meet and fitting that he should be done to death by the winged envoys of sweetness. "'Your Majesty means?' said the royal librarian. "'I mean,' said the king, "'that he shall be stung to death by bees. "'By the royal bees, of course.' "'A most elegant death,' said the librarian. "'Elegant and spectacular and decidedly painful,' said the king. "'It fulfils all the conditions that could be wished for.' The king himself thought out all the details of the execution ceremony. Vespaluus was to be stripped of his clothes, his hands were to be bound behind him, and he was then to be slung in a recumbent position immediately above three of the largest of the royal beehives, so that the least movement of his body would bring him in jarring contact with them. The rest could be safely left to the bees. The death throes, the king computed, might last anything from fifteen to forty minutes, though there was division of opinion and considerable wagering among the other nephews as to whether death might not be almost instantaneous, or, on the other hand, whether it might not be deferred for a couple of hours. Anyway, they all agreed, it was vastly preferable to being thrown down into an evil-smelling bear-pit and being clawed and mauled to death by imperfectly carnivorous animals. It so happened, however, that the keeper of the royal hives had leanings towards Christianity himself, and moreover, like most of the court officials, he was very much attached to Vespaluus. On the eve of the execution, therefore, he busied himself with removing the stings from all the royal bees. It was a long and delicate operation, but he was an expert bee-master, and by working hard nearly all night, he succeeded in disarming all, or almost all, of the hive inmates. "'I didn't know you could take the sting from a live bee,' said the baroness incredulously. "'Every profession has its secrets,' replied Clovis. "'If it hadn't, it wouldn't be a profession.' Well, the moment for the execution arrived." The king and court took their places, 
and accommodation was found for as many of the populace as wished to witness the unusual spectacle. Fortunately, the royal bee-yard was of considerable dimensions, and was commanded, moreover, by the terraces that ran round the royal gardens. With a little squeezing, and the erection of a few platforms, room was found for everybody. Vespaluus was carried into the open space in front of the hives, blushing and slightly embarrassed, but not at all displeased at the attention which was being centred on him. "'He seems to have resembled you in more things than in appearance,' said the baroness. "'Don't interrupt at a critical point in the story,' said Clovis. As soon as he had been carefully adjusted in the prescribed position over the hives, and almost before the jailers had time to retire to a safe distance, Vespaluus gave a lusty and well-aimed kick, which sent all three hives toppling one over another. The next moment he was wrapped from head to foot in bees. Each individual insect nursed the dreadful and humiliating knowledge that in this supreme hour of catastrophe it could not sting, but each felt that it ought to pretend to. Vespaluus squealed and wriggled with laughter, for he was being tickled nearly to death, and now and again he gave a furious kick and used a bad word, as one of the few bees that had escaped disarmament got its protest home. But the spectators saw with amazement that he showed no signs of approaching death agony, and as the bees dropped wearily away in clusters from his body, his flesh was seen to be as white and smooth as before the ordeal, with a shiny glaze from the honey smear of innumerable bee-feet, and here and there a small red spot where one of the rare stings had left its mark. It was obvious that a miracle had been performed in his favour, and one loud murmur, of astonishment or exultation, rose from the onlooking crowd. The king gave orders for Vespaluus to be taken down to await further orders, and stalked silently back to his midday meal, at which he was careful to eat heartily and drink copiously, as though nothing unusual had happened. After dinner he sent for the royal librarian. "'What is the meaning of this fiasco?' he demanded. "'Your Majesty,' said that official, "'either there is something radically wrong with the bees, "'there is nothing wrong with my bees,' said the king haughtily. "'They are the best bees.' "'Or else,' said the librarian, "'there is something irremediably right about Prince Vespaluus.' "'If Vespaluus is right, I must be wrong,' said the king. "'The librarian was silent for a moment.' Hasty speech has been the downfall of many. Ill-considered silence was the undoing of the luckless court functionary. Forgetting the restraint due to his dignity, and the golden rule which imposes repose of mind and body after a heavy meal, the king rushed upon the keeper of the royal books, and hit him repeatedly and promiscuously over the head with an ivory chessboard, a pewter wine-flagon, and a brass candlestick. He knocked him violently and often against an iron-torch sconce, 
and kicked him thrice round the banqueting chamber with rapid energetic kicks. Finally he dragged him down a long passage by the hair of his head and flung him out of a window into the courtyard below. "'Was he much hurt?' asked the baroness. "'More hurt than surprised,' said Clovis. "'You see, the king was notorious for his violent temper. However, this was the first time he had let himself go so unrestrainedly on the top of a heavy meal.' The librarian lingered for many days. In fact, for all I know, he may have ultimately recovered. But Krikos died that same evening. Vespaluus had hardly finished getting the honey stains off his body before a hurried deputation came to put the coronation oil on his head. And what with the publicly witnessed miracle and the accession of a Christian sovereign, it was not surprising that there was a general scramble of converts to the new religion. A hastily consecrated bishop was overworked with a rush of baptisms in the hastily improvised cathedral of St. Odilo, and the boy-martyr that might have been was transposed in the popular imagination into a royal boy-saint whose fame attracted throngs of curious and devout sightseers to the capital. Vespaluus, who was busily engaged in organising the games and athletic contests that were to mark the commencement of his reign, had no time to give heed to the religious fervour which was effervescing round his personality. The first indication he had of the existing state of affairs was when the court chamberlain, a recent and very ardent addition to the Christian community, brought for his approval the outlines of a projected ceremonial cutting down of the idolatrous serpent grove. "'Your Majesty will be graciously pleased to cut down the first tree with a specially consecrated axe,' said the obsequious official. "'I'll cut off your head first with any axe that comes handy,' said Vespaluus indignantly. "'Do you suppose that I'm going to begin my reign by mortally affronting the sacred serpents? "'It would be most unlucky.' "'But your Majesty's Christian principles!' exclaimed the bewildered Chamberlain. "'I never had any,' said Vespaluus. "'I used to pretend to be a Christian convert, just to annoy Krikos. "'He used to fly into such delicious tempers.' and it was rather fun being whipped and scolded and shut up in a tower all for nothing. But as to turning Christian in real earnest, like you people seem to do, I couldn't think of such a thing. And the holy and esteemed serpents have always helped me when I've prayed to them for success in my running and wrestling and hunting, and it was through their distinguished intercession that the bees were not able to hurt me with their stings. It would be black ingratitude to turn against their worship at the very outset of my reign. I hate you for suggesting it. The Chamberlain wrung his hands despairingly. But, Your Majesty, he wailed, the people are reverencing you as a saint, and the nobles are being Christianized in batches, and neighbouring potentates of that faith are sending special envoys to welcome you as a brother. There is some talk of making you the patron saint of beehives, and a certain shade of honey-yellow has been christened Vespaluusian gold, 
at the Emperor's court. You can't surely go back on all this. I don't mind being reverenced and greeted and honoured, said Vespalius. I don't even mind being sainted in moderation, as long as I'm not expected to be saintly as well. But I wish you clearly and finally to understand that I will not give up the worship of the august and auspicious serpents. There was a world of unspoken bear-pit in the way he uttered those last words, and the mulberry dark eyes flashed dangerously. A new reign, said the Chamberlain to himself, but the same old temper. Finally, as a state necessity, the matter of the religions was compromised. At stated intervals the king appeared before his subjects in the national cathedral in the character of Saint Vespaluus, and the idolatrous grove was gradually pruned and lopped away till nothing remained of it. But the sacred and esteemed serpents were removed to a private shrubbery in the royal gardens, where Vespaluus the pagan and certain members of his household devoutly and decently worshipped them. That possibly is the reason why the boy-king's success in sports and hunting never deserted him to the end of his days, and that is also the reason why, in spite of the popular veneration for his sanctity, he never received official canonization. "'It has stopped raining,' said the Baroness. End of The Story of St. Vespaluus This recording is in the public domain.